A massive lobbying budget to the tune of over $13 million. TikTok and its Chinese parent company are trying to reassure U.S. lawmakers and officials as accusations fly that they pose a major security risk. At the heart of those fears, the Chinese Communist Party getting a hold of American user data. That's as the wildly popular social media and its 150 million regular U.S. users stare down the barrel at a potential nationwide ban. Will that lobbying have any effect? Or are TikTok's days numbered in America? Welcome to China In Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Over $13 million. That's how much money TikTok and its parent company ByteDance have poured into lobbying since 2019. Of those funds, a whopping $5.3 million went towards federal lobbying in 2022. That's according to OpenSecrets.org. On the forefront of that lobbying, issues linked to data privacy, national security, antitrust, internet, data protection, social media moderation, and new technologies. But those efforts appear to have had little effect. Concerns are rising about how the app manages its user data and if it has or will end up in Beijing's hands. Could they use TikTok to control data on millions of users? Uh, yes. Could they use it to control the software on millions of devices, given the opportunity to do so? Yes. Could they use it to drive narratives, uh, like to divide Americans against each other? For example, let's say China wants to invade Taiwan to make sure that Americans are seeing videos arguing why Taiwan belongs to China and why the U.S. should not intervene? Yes. During a testimony before Congress, TikTok's EO admitted that certain China-based staff may access certain U.S. data, though he added that the company's policy overhaul, called Project Texas, would end that possibility. Because of that, lawmakers are backing a number of proposals to restrict the app, from pushing the company to give up its Chinese ownership to implementing a full ban in the U.S., GOP Congress member Ken Buck and Senator Josh Hawley introducing a recent bill that would block TikTok downloads nationwide. But TikTok and its 150 million monthly active U.S. users aren't taking that possibility sitting down. The company's CEO, Shou Ziqiu, has encouraged users to be vocal about keeping TikTok alive in the United States. Let me know in the comments what you want your elected representatives to know about what you love about TikTok. While influencers have started posting appeals. It's because of TikTok that I had to go out and get a website. I'm at a point now where I've outgrown my house. Back to TikTok's lobbying efforts, ahead of Chu's hearing, he enlisted help from several former committee staffers, as well as aides to Speaker Kevin McCarthy and former Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Beyond that, the company recently hired an Indiana-based consulting group called the Corridan Group. Other recent recruits include former Congressman Jeff Denham and Ankit Deshai, a former aide to Biden during his time as a senator. Lobbying efforts have reportedly targeted the White House since 2020. In light of those concerns over TikTok's data, Casey Fleming, CEO of Black Ops Partners, touches on a critical category of U.S. user info, location services. Location services, they can actually act, if your location services are turned off, they can turn it on remotely without you knowing it. And then they can track you from a GPS perspective. Access to your all of your pictures, all of your videos, all of your texts, all the private texting apps, um, instant messaging, key logging, 
near field communication payments, which are NFC payments like Apple Pay and so on, your Wi-Fi access tracking, your calendar, and let me back up, all of your Wi-Fi traffic at home, business, your hotel, wherever you're logging into Wi-Fi, they can get access to that network as well because you're logging into that network from that phone or that computer. Um, so also smart TVs, uh, appliances, cable boxes, uh, you name it, anything that hooks up to your Wi-Fi at your house. And then also it's got access, full access to Bluetooth, Bluetooth tracking, your calendar, all of your contacts, your email, your files, your documents, your music. Here's a key point. They can custom install anything. Fleming says the Chinese Communist Party has named the U.S. its enemy and has considered it as such for many, many years. Adding that Beijing is using unrestricted warfare to target Washington through any tools at its disposal. The tech war between the U.S. and China is heating up. Beijing retaliating on Friday, slapping cybersecurity reviews on Micron, one of America's largest memory chip makers. Here's the latest. China's cybersecurity administration would review Micron's products sold in the country. Beijing said the new directive is based on national security grounds. But the move came the same day Japan announced plans to restrict semiconductor manufacturing equipment to China. Japan's action comes after striking a deal with the U.S. and the Netherlands on semiconductor exports. The goal is to restrict China's access to advanced microchips. Chips are at the heart of U.S.-China competition. They're essential for military capabilities since they function as the brains and hearts of weapons, ranging from fighter jets to nuclear arms. The Chinese military has been relying on chips made with U.S. technology. For example, some of China's most advanced supercomputers use chips from Intel and TSMC. Last October, Washington came out with sweeping sanctions, banning chip makers from selling advanced chips or chip-making equipment to China unless they get a license. But that ban has met with a twist. Some of the world's biggest microchip makers have announced they've received exemptions to the ban. They include Intel, TSMC, Samsung Electronics, and SK Hynix. Recently, Washington has been persuading allies and partners to join its effort, urging Japan and the Netherlands to help restrict China's access. Both are leaders in chip-making equipment. When the news broke that Beijing would review Micron products, the company's shares tanked over 4 percent on Wall Street, the biggest drop in more than three months. Micron gets over 10 percent of its revenue from China. Tesla chief executive Elon Musk is making plans to visit China as early as April. He's seeking a meeting with China's premier Li Qiang. Let's dive in. Elon Musk is heading back to China. Reuters has learned exclusively that the Tesla CEO is planning his first trip since the health crisis in the hopes of meeting with China's premier Li Qiang. That's according to two people with knowledge of his plans who added that Musk could travel as soon as April. China is Tesla's second-largest market after the United States, and its Shanghai plant is the electric car maker's largest production hub. Musk last visited China in early 2020 and set the Internet abuzz when a clip surfaced of him doing a bit of dad dancing, as some called it, at the Shanghai factory. The construction of that factory and its opening in 2019 were overseen by now Premier Li, back when he was Shanghai's party secretary. Tesla is grappling with multiple issues, such as delays to its plans to more than double production capacity at the Shanghai plant. 
Tesla cars have also been barred from Chinese military complexes and political meeting venues amid concerns over cameras installed on the vehicles, and the company is still waiting for Beijing's approval to offer its full self-driving technology. Still, the EV maker recently reported one of its best sales quarters in China after slashing its prices in a bid to defend its market share. China is also one of the largest non-U.S. revenue streams for Twitter, which Musk took over last year. Sources told Reuters that Twitter's China operations have caused divisions within the company between those who want to maximize the sales opportunity and others who are concerned about the optics of doing business with state-affiliated entities at a time of growing tension between Beijing and Washington. Japan's Prime Minister Kishida demanding that Beijing release a Japanese businessman. The man works for a Japanese drug maker in China and was detained by Chinese authorities last month. Here's more. Kishida said Monday the Japanese government requested consular visits with the detained man. It's commonplace for the Chinese Communist Party to reduce foreigners' access to consular help or cut them off from it completely. Over the weekend, Japanese Foreign Minister Hayashi met his Chinese counterpart and urged China to promptly release the Japanese man. I made a protest against the recent new case of a detention of a Japanese person in Beijing and made a strong point of our position on the matter, including for the early release of this national. Beijing accused the person of espionage. Tokyo said it has not heard an explanation for that allegation. The lack of transparency has left other business people on edge. A Japanese expatriate in China, who declined to be named, said, there's a general sense of anxiety. Everyone understands that they could be detained at any point. He described the emotions his fellow expatriates are experiencing as a roller coaster because, quote, there's a possibility the authorities could say that whatever we're doing on a daily basis is illegal. Officials said they would handle the case according to the law. The detainment marks an apparent escalation of the troubles foreign businesses have been facing in China for years. The Japanese expatriate said, under China's national security law, Japanese businesses in China have struggled to transfer production data from their own factories across borders. A warning already issued last month. The U.S. State Department urged Americans and citizens of other countries to reconsider travel to China. That's due to the risk that Chinese authorities could arbitrarily detain foreigners. A new report is sending out a warning that a Chinese hacking group is highly active and it's likely state-sponsored. The group that has been previously linked to attacks on state government computers in the U.S. Here are the details. The report comes from Insect Group. It's the threat research division of a cybersecurity company called Recorded Future. The report refers to the hacking group as Red Gulf. Insect's group says it identified a cluster of domains and infrastructure highly likely used across multiple campaigns by Red Gulf over the past two years. The report says Red Gulf is focusing on a broad range of targets that may be of strategic interest to the Chinese regime. The cybersecurity firm says they believe the activity is likely for intelligence purposes rather than a financial gain. The hacking group is targeting major sectors in the U.S., including government, media, information technology, aviation, automotive, education, and religious organizations. China's hardline zero COVID-19 policy turned into a nightmare for many of its citizens. 
But for others, it functioned as a well-oiled money-making machine. A former pandemic worker now reveals the untold darkness behind the scenes. Li Changlin was a member of China's big white army, the country's ubiquitous lockdown enforcers, known for their trademark hazmat suits. In February 2021, he started working at a quarantine hotel in Hangzhou, a tourist hub in east-central China. Beijing blamed the COVID-19 spike on imported cases, but Li said he didn't see large infection numbers among Chinese traveling back home from overseas. I didn't find any positive cases from these people during my working in the hotel, only one. At the time, the country's COVID-19 containment was at its most rampant, with strict quarantine periods placed on foreign arrivals. Returnees were first quarantined for 14 days at our hotel upon arrival. As they returned to their home cities, there were another 14 days of quarantine required. These were all self-paid. Hotel stays alone cost about $40 per day, adding up to an over $1,000 per person cost for the one-month minimum under quarantine. I don't know why the communists did this. Maybe they caused the people pain so they would believe the virus was serious, and then the lockdown was justified. Or maybe the local officials were trying to scam money out of people. For more than half a year, Lee said he witnessed officials abusing pandemic power for social control. China also used big data to track COVID-19 contacts. A health code system detected those in close proximity with a confirmed infection case and flagged them with a code red, leading to a two-week mandatory lockdown. For those lucky enough to avoid contact, the code reflected a green safe reading. Yet according to Li, authorities made the code stay permanently green for all health workers, no matter how many infected patients they came into contact with. In July 2021, Chinese police arrested a 64-year-old woman and accused her of spreading the virus. Some of her code red contacts were forced into lockdown at Li's hotel, but he said none of them tested positive. Although physically healthy, those in isolation reportedly suffered mental stress and harassment from authorities. Of course, there were people unwilling to cooperate. Then a group of police would break into their rooms and ask them if they wanted to stay in the hotel or the detention center. After leaving China, Lee moved from Singapore to the United States. He said these experiences taught him about the nature of the Chinese Communist Party and inspired him to finally speak up. Coming up, the Defense Department is gearing up for potential conflicts in space. The major threat there, Russian and Chinese missiles that can destroy U.S. satellites. Why are space-level weapons critical for a modern fighting force? And why are officials calling to step up missile defense systems? We spoke to Brandon Weikert, author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower for Insight. Well, if they lose space, if the Russians and or Chinese do something to those systems in space, um, yeah, all of that advanced modern military equipment will be useless. Something like 72% of the U.S. Army's, for instance, uh, uh, weapon systems rely on space on some level to function properly. We lose those satellites, the U.S. Army's weapons are basically, you know, useless. Our homeland is undefended. We have the technology to defend the homeland, at least at a rudimentary level. We just don't have the political will to fund it. Get the details after the break here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. The Pentagon is preparing for potential conflicts in space. Beijing and Russia already armed with missiles and lasers that could take down U.S. satellites. But why are space-grade weapons critical for modern warfare? 
We spoke to Brandon Weichert, author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower for Answers. Brandon Weichert, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be back. And Brandon, how important is the space level of weapons? Because it seems right there's the continued Russian aggression against Ukraine. There's the potential for a Beijing invasion of Taiwan. If the U.S. is actually stuck in a two-front battle with, say, you know, military tanks, also, you know, by sea and land, what? how important is the space element? Because it sounds like you could just wipe that out. Right. So it's one of those bizarre sort of quirks of our of our history today where um, our entire military requires the space layer to operate as a modern fighting force. And yet that space layer, as I just outlined, is still extremely vulnerable to attack and disruption by our foes. And so uh, if we lose that space layer, um, Ukraine's defense you know, it's already struggling right now, but Ukraine's defense is over. I mean, they're already working on in China with lasers, but also Russia is now developing this capability to go after Starlink, which was sort of a stopgap that Elon Musk volunteered to give the Ukrainians to keep them in the fight. It has been one of the primary reasons in the last year why the Ukrainians have resisted Russia is because they're able to, with fewer troops, move faster than the Russians and sort of end run them with faster communication and better surveillance and coordination across a large front. Well, if they lose space, if the Russians and or Chinese do something to those systems in space, um, yeah, all of that advanced modern military equipment will be useless. Something like 72% of the U.S. Army's, for instance, um, uh, weapon systems rely on space on some level to function properly. We lose those satellites. The U.S. Army's weapons are basically, you know, useless. And this has been the problem is that the Pentagon and particularly our elected leaders in both parties for 30 years have not looked at it this way. They've always looked at space as just an offshoot, something that we could lose, not that important. It is essential. It is the high ground. And if you lose the high ground in war, any strategist will tell you, you lose the war. And on that note, then, what should the steps be if the U.S. were to implement them right now to fix this? What would those steps look like? Well, the Space Force needs to go big and go bold, and they're not. They're taking small little increases in their budget and calling that a win. Well, if this were peacetime, that'd be fine, but this is not peacetime. Let's face it, we're in World War III already. So they need to demand a much larger share of the budgetary pie from Congress, even if that means that it, it, it goes against the Air Force and the other branches. We need a Space Force that has the ability to dump a lot of money overnight into programs like creating these smaller, uh, easily replaceable satellite constellations to make our military satellites interchangeable at times, in the times of a crisis at least, with civilian satellites, interoperability. We need to also ensure that the United States is building a space-based missile defense system. This is the closest to nuclear war, Tiffany, that we've ever come in, probably in 50 years. And I would say we're closer now than we were during the Cuban Missile Crisis, if you can believe that. So our homeland is undefended. We have the technology to defend the homeland, at least at a rudimentary level. We just don't have the political will to fund it. So now we need Space Force to be going to the Hill every day and saying, dear Congress, if you don't give us the money to do a space-based missile defense system, we are going to get hit and it's going to be on you, 
not on us. Make it public and go after them and put the pressure on them. Shame works in this case. So shame them into funding these programs because we need better satellites that can survive an attack and that can keep us in a fight. And then we also need space-based missile defense to ensure that our people in our homes and our homeland are protected from Chinese, Russian, Iranian, and North Korean nuclear threats. And they're not right now. And that is a sin. Brandon, I want to get to the nuclear war part, but you did mention we're already in World War III, and some might be like, oh, I don't see an actual armed conflict. So what are the parts that are proving that we're in World War III right now? What are you seeing? Well, basically, what we are fighting in Ukraine, they say it's a proxy war, but it's much more than a proxy war, because a proxy war such as we fought in Afghanistan against the Soviets in the 1980s, we weren't trying to destroy the Soviet government in Moscow. We were just trying to keep them out of Afghanistan. U.S. policymakers have been very clear that the goal of the U.S. Uh, mission in, in Ukraine, even though we're not directly fighting, has been to see regime change in Russia, has been to see Russia. I mean, we've had Foreign Affairs, which is the Council on Foreign Relations premier publication, repeated articles from multiple people connected to the Biden administration writing about the breakup of the so of the Russian Federation as a result of the Ukrainian war, if, if the West prevails. Um, the Russians are reading this. That's why suddenly now Vladimir Putin has gone from calling this a special military operation where he sent 160,000 guys. Now he's it's an all of society conflict. He's likening it to the Soviet experience against the Nazis, and that's not just rhetoric. So you're already seeing a total societal commitment. And from this conflict, Tiffany, you're now seeing the bifurcation of the world system away from the U.S.-led world order and toward a more Sinocentric one in which the autocrats of Eurasia are forming an anti-American autocratic alliance, uh, Russia, along with Iran, North Korea, maybe even Turkey, and they're even possibly now with this thing between Venezuela in Guyana. They might be looping in Venezuela in our neck of the woods. But these regimes are forming an alliance because they don't want to see U Ukraine become a NATO member or a NATO you know, uh, a proxy because they worry that that will be an example for the rest of the West to go after China with Taiwan, to go after you know, Iran with Iraq or, or Israel, etc. And so we're already seeing the breakdown of the peace and we're at the very opening phases of the war. Remember, the Second World War and even the First World War began as regional conflicts, and they did not begin as you know this great big you know hurly burly. But they quickly evolved into that. And so we are at the transition point from peace to total war, I believe. Brandon Weikert, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Tiffany. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.